what's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And uh, we're getting ever so close to episode 100. Yes, we are. And in honor of that, we decided to pack out our studio as full as possible. Yes. This is the first time since episode two where we don't have enough microphones for buddy. You know what that means. We're going to order another microphone. <laughs> Literally doing it the second we get off the air. Not surprised. Don't tell my wife. No, yeah. I'll keep it myself. But uh, yeah, so uh, today besides Cole and I, we have our buddy Ryan Rosenblatt coming back. Coming back at you quick. This is his second appearance? Second, and then also he's been so. with us in spirit over Instagram mm. That's probably right. 8,000 times. <laughs> True. So you've probably heard his name mentioned at least a few episodes. You guys definitely are the only account I have an alert set up for whenever you go live. I'm, I'm you know, earning that badge of biggest fan. Feels yeah. special. I've actually noticed that in my analytics that you're creeping up there towards the top. I'll get you a sticker. I'm going to block your account. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah I'm just kidding. Ryan, it's an honor. happy to have you here. Um, you're on the last, what, 10 days of pharmacy school? That's it. Yeah, I end uh, March 31st, and then I have to study for NAPLEX, and hopefully with all this craziness in the world, I'll be able to take it ASAP and sit for boards and sit for the MPJE, and that'll be a wrap. Rest so they're going to let you They're gonna let y'all graduate? Well, <laughs> we'll see. Good. Good. And also... I have my uh, two fourth-year students who are in Ryan's class that are stuck with me all month of March. Um, first up, Morgan, what's up? Oh, hey, I'm Morgan. I'm a fourth-year pharmacy student at MUSC with the pleasure of being on my dissertation this month, so it's a good time. So, uh, Morgan, what's, uh, what are you doing come next year? Um, I'll be doing a PGY-1 residency at Wake Forest Baptist Health, so nice. heading up to Winston-Salem pretty excited about that that's awesome what's the residency or, or yeah which residency are you going to be doing so like um, general and then you're going to specialize PGY1. yeah i'm interested in like internal med crit care something like that so they have pgy2 in both of those so hopefully i'll end up there for a second year that'd be cool would you prefer to like stay in the same spot for a second year or would you want to go somewhere else if you had to i mean i've heard it's pretty great so i wouldn't mind staying in the same place but if i had to go somewhere else i would be cool with that yeah leah what's up what's up <laughs> Tell the internet all about yourself because I know you like talking. Oh, yes, the best. Um, so, yeah, I am also a fourth year um, and I'm going to Utah next year for my PGY1. Nice. Yeah, a little far away. It'll be good. I visited there in September. Remember, and I think Mike made. Never mind, we won't revisit that. But Should I make a joke about it? You might have made racist comments about Utah. Racist? If I recall. <laughs> like it was. On, the, on the podcast. How could they have been racist? <laughs> we'll go back to that. I think it was when Patrick was here. Okay, maybe. Yeah. Congratulations just, think, to both of you guys, by the way. Yeah. Congrats. Congrats. Our class has been really well. I've noticed that we've had a lot of people matching first round, so it's pretty amazing. I'm, I was always pretty sure that we were smart people in the classroom. <laughs> I didn't do a residency, but I'm pretty excited to see everybody moving on and doing that. It's, it's been pretty impressive. We we were like what we got really high up as far as like our rankings and with percentage of match right. We've been high for the last couple of years, yeah. I think. Yeah, we were like number one like three years ago. My year, we were number one. Yeah. Nice. Good yeah. job, Cole. I didn't do it, but oh, well. good job, to my classmates. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, what are you gonna do? Um, are you thinking PGY two as well? Um. Yeah, I'm thinking emergency medicine right now. Sweet. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's cool. cool. You're gonna try to stay out in Utah as well. You're gonna try to go somewhere else, PGY two. Um, it depends on how cold it gets, to be honest. <laughs> it snows. 
Yeah. yeah, no, it was snowing in February when I went, so I hope I'm prepared. The uh, We'll have to get you hooked up with our buddy uh, Brian Gilbert. It's been on the podcast a few times. He's in emergency medicine. Um, he runs the, res- the PGY2 residency for quick care emergency medicine out in Kansas, but he knows a lot of people. So yeah. Yeah, It's basically the same thing. It's out out there somewhere yeah so. it's basically the same pretty much state. the same place you got to fly there anyway so. yeah right you might as well go a little bit one i have a connecting flight in kansas <laughs> i always find myself out in kansas yeah I, with your ruby kidding. red slippers dorothy oh yeah good wizard of oz reference well done boys nice that's all i got for kansas <laughs> All right, so yeah, we got a full house today, so I'm interested to see how crazy this looks on the camera. On the camera, oh, it's gonna be great. Yeah, everybody wave. But uh, yeah, there it is. No, we're supposed to pretend it's not there. Einstein's like throwing off the uh, the focus because he's he's waving. He hasn't front. gotten much sun recently. There he goes. Man. Yeah, yeah, he needs some sun. Yeah, we get him outside. Okay. So um, yes, today we are talking about sickle cell anemia. This is one of those topics, like many of our other topics, where we're like, hey. We should do, you know, a quick episode. Let's take a super complex issue mm-hmm. and try to pretend like we can talk about it for 30 minutes. Yeah, I feel like we could take one piece of this as far as complications go and do a nice 30, 40-minute podcast. I agree. We're not going to do that today. No, no, we're not. We're going to talk about all of it. We're going to do it all. So we're going to go completely against reason and do it the, the real fashion way. So I think, and I think we were actually, was mentioning this to Ryan earlier over the phone. I'm like, I think, uh, you know, now that we're coming on episode 100, I think our big you know, move at after episode 100 going into the new season, if you will, is going to be taking all the subjects we've already done and then actually like going deep with good. them. And yeah. then we can actually, you know, do what we're supposed, supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good idea. We had a good warm up, 100 episode warm up. <laughs> well, we, I mean, after we've done overviews of every possible me- possible medical topic, right? then we have to go deeper. We have right? to go deeper. There's no other choice. The first 100 were free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to pay for this. They, yeah. Uh, oh, your, so much gold in these next po- coming episodes. Get your pocketbooks out, America. <laughs> is there going to be a core consult only fans? Is that what you're thinking? Or? Ooh, um, I don't know. We have a Patreon account. That's about it. It's only negative three people on it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. We haven't gone the whole pay uh, pay as you go um, route yet. I don't think we're going to. Especially since most of our listeners are students, I try not to mm-hmm. take uh, take money out of students' pockets when they don't have any. Take well, government money. Not, not now, my style. Now that we're graduating, we can say these because I've definitely learned most of the stuff that I needed to for tests off of your podcast more than anything else. So. <laughs> Might not be a good thing. Do not tell that to anyone <laughs> at the school. <laughs> yeah. That will not go over well. So, uh, Cole, I'm assuming you got some background information for us. I do. He's like so, the historian of the group. Did you know that it wasn't Probably always not. called uh, sickle cell disease or I didn't. sickle cell anemia? It used to be called Herrick's syndrome. That was named after a man named James Herrick, uh, who first recognized the sickle cell blood cells in a medical student in Chicago. Uh, he was, I believe, teaching at Chicago at the time. Uh, the kid was from Granada. And so, um, which is in the West Indies, um, the disease we'll see is uh, most common almost exclusively um, in people of African descent, but also um, in the West Indies and um, other other areas where malaria is um, endemic. But uh, yeah, James Herrick, he was the one who first um, found it. He also was one of the first to um, describe the mechanism of a myocardial infarction of an MI. So he had some really? considerable um, contributions. This was in 1910, so just over 100 years ago. 
Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Did when did did he also like was he involved with the genetic component of it as far so as figuring out what caused it? Do they you actually know? referenced that. So he was not closely associated with genetics, but since his discoveries happen to have strong genetic components, he's considered um, somebody who's contributed a lot to genetics. But no, he didn't look much into it, and I don't think they had too much info on it at that time. He just recognized that, huh? These uh, these cells look kind of funny. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe this is why this guy's having so much pain. It's what I do. I look at cells. And I'm like, these don't look right. <laughs> don't look and right I make to me. discovery after discovery. <laughs> so, um, yeah. What do you want to start? Yeah. I mean, we can just start with um, kind of a little bit of the pathology behind why it's sickled. Um, and we'll say that it's a very, this is definitely a very sad disease. Um, most of you are probably familiar that um, it's kind of a, an adaptation uh, to create a defense against malaria. That's why I referenced malaria. Um, believe uh, people who are born with this, their survival rate from malaria is around 60%. Um, but then, of course, they have a significant morbidity um, if they make it to adulthood and then throughout their life, which um, is inevitably shortened, uh, even with American medicine, um, much less someone in a um, developing country. Uh, so definitely a sad disorder but sickle cell disease um, it's primarily genetic there's multiple variants um, that can cause it in america it's most frequently from um, variants in the hemoglobin s that's uh, the most common one found in north america it's um, frequently homozygous hemoglobin s so it'd be references um, hbss it's an autosomal recessive disorder um, like I said, first described by Mr. Herrick, or I should say Dr. Herrick back in 1910. And and there is several other, I guess, because you can be a uh, carrier of the sickle cell trait, obviously not have necessarily any out, outward uh, phenotypic um, manifestations of the disease. But that being said, there are several other um components that can happen with uh, like we can have sickle cell plus um, thalassemia um, there's lots of different syndromes that can kind of come you know come about by it. but sickle cell anemia the one that we typically think of is the most common form that's correct um, and that um, they estimate that about eight percent of African Americans carry the sickle cell gene with about a hundred thousand people in the u.s actually having full-blown sickle cell disease so about two million Americans in the u.s <laughs> If you're in the U.S., well, I guess there are Amer there are people in the U.S. who aren't Americans, um, but yeah, two million people in the U.S. Uh, carry the trait, carry the trait. So, in you know, thinking that like kind of the whole process, you know, we have a lot of a very high concentration of um, hemoglo fetal hemoglobin, like during the gestation um, period, and you know, as around 32 weeks gestation, we start to switch from these. Uh, the production of alpha, or excuse me, for gamma chains, um, to, from gamma chains to beta chains on the hemoglobin molecule itself. So you get this hemoglobin A production, which is more like the adult hemoglobin that we think about. Um, and so the defect kind of starts all the way with a uh, basically just a substitution of two amino acids. So instead of valine, um, you get substitution or substitution of, of valine for glutamic acid. And, uh, and it's on the sixth amino acid of the beta polypeptide chain of a hemoglobin molecule. And that causes the red blood cell instead of having that, um, nice, like 
biconcave shape that we always think about um, that's very able, you know, to squeeze through capillaries and kind of move around the body. Um, this kind of gives us like this sickle shape and that can cause, you know, a lot of problems, you know, with the vasculature and with several other things that we'll kind of talk about. But that uh, sickling is, is kind of what starts something as simple as a amino acid substitution. Yeah, and it, it causes changes in solubility, molecular stability. If you're looking um, at the chain, it would be um, designated instead of GAG, which is what you're supposed to have. It would be GTG mm-hmm. um, for the substitution. So you'll see uh, one of the drugs that they use to treat this like as a, as a chronic medication um, is promoting hemoglobin F, which... Um, helps yeah. kind of go against the uh, hemoglobin S and the sickling. Uh, so we'll talk about that later, but that's one thing that you use to promote that. And I think that's one of the primary targets of new drugs that they're looking at um, to hopefully per- per- prolong life and prevent morbidity in these patients. And so, you know, if you think about like the sickled red blood cells kind of moving through the vasculature, the endothelium, you, know, you can get this uh, endothelium activated by these sickle cell uh, red blood cells. Um, they can bind through like adhesion molecules on the red blood cell surface. Um, they can work through like plasma proteins. So you'll see like von Willebrand factor, things like that. And uh, basically can start this kind of like cascade of activating things like neutrophils, um, monocytes, natural killer T cells, um, and then starting to generate other like cytokines, even platelets and things like that. And you get this kind of like um, endothelial damage that can happen um, over time and end up causing like a lot of um, pain in uh, the patients as these red blood cells are trying to move through and they're causing a lot of uh, other issues around the body. And so kind of getting like lowering the occurrence of some of these crises is one of the main important parts of treating someone with sickle cell disease and making sure that they're not having this um, vaso-occlusive crises that can happen with this buildup of these red blood cells. Um, you know, long-term aspects, you know, that can lead to not just like pain or a vaso-occlusive crisis that we think about, but actually like, uh, you know, things like stroke, um, it can obviously cause long-term anemia. It can cause things like renal failure, preopism, blindness, um, lots of different, very negative uh, outcomes over time. Mm-hmm. And so it is something that, you know, these patients have a lot to deal with kind of through their entire lives. It's definitely a very painful disease and something that is, uh, greatly decreases their quality of life. Yeah. And I mean, just to finish out the list of, um, issues they have to deal with, you mentioned acute and chronic pain, bone pain, aplastic crises, splenic sequestration, um, infection is a big one, growth retardation, um, being underweight, hand foot syndrome, which is like, um, uh, where they have swelling of the joints of the hands and feet. I think they call it dactylitis. Um, acute chest syndrome, which is a frequent cause of mortality in children, pulmonary hypertension, um, avascular necrosis of the femoral and humeral heads. Uh, they have CNS, ophthalmologic, ophthalmologic, uh, cardiac, GI, GU involvement, various things. Dermatologic involvement, um, they get leg ulcers, which is a chronic painful problem. So lots of things. So we could probably take two or three of these post episode 100. Right. And actually Not talk about them more. Not a second sooner than that. Nope. <laughs> Not 99. I think the pain portion of it is probably the most influential. I, I know that a lot of the patients I see at the pharmacy I work at who are chronic pain are sickle cell. 
And then on a rotation in the inpatient, we had an acute pain episode and the patient actually came in and said, I'm going to need this regimen to get through this. She had it already down. Like whenever this happens, she comes in, she needs X amount of Dilaudid and she can make it through the two nights that she needs before they can treat her and, and try to stabilize her. So I was very impressed by that and very, you know, they, the doctors were willing to let her drive the boat because she'd done this a few times in her life. I think too, that kind of plays into the whole stigma with the opioid you know, crisis and things that we're talking about now, you know, the, if somebody comes in, it's like, I need, I need this, you know, strength Dilaudid, you know, I need PCA here. I need, you know, all this. it can definitely throw up some warnings like, okay, come on. Are you really here to get control of your pain or, but you know, it's one of those things that this is such a painful disorder that it, yes. And you have to take the pain seriously. And it's not just that they're a, a chronic you know, medication seeker. It's the fact that they have this, this disease that really is, um, I mean, very, very painful. Right. I mean, two of the diseases that they frequently reference is like, oh yeah, of course they need opioids is cancer pain mm-hmm. and sickle cell crisis. Right. Um, so yeah, they, sometimes they do seem drug seeking, but I mean, all they have to do is look at their history and say, oh, they have sickle cell and boom, yeah, it's fine. You get what you want. Cause frequently they're trained. So if you're being treated for sickle cell, a lot of times, um, you want to be set up with a hematologist or even go to a clinic that specializes in treating sickle cell because there's a lot of facets to it. And they'll probably counsel the patient on um, actually trying to handle um, their sickle cell crisis at home first. And then if they're like the bed rest and the oral analgesics is not getting the job done, that's when they go to the ER and I'm sure they have their, you know, regimen, like they know exactly what they need to get them through. Um, and they, the guidelines emphasize the importance of quick assessment and treatment of pain shortly after triage. Um, so yeah, as far as, um, the outcomes from that visit, it's important to get that on, on board early. And as far as managing, you know, the number of crises that they have um cole mentioned it earlier but um, hydroxyurea is one of the you know longest used medications in this disease state and you know what it's doing is it's actually increasing that fetal hemoglobin production like cole said uh now as far as children we typically you know consider if a child's greater than nine months um we're going to consider this therapy and see if the patient's a candidate for it um, regardless of severity um you know it's been shown to decrease the number of painful crises um decrease the number of episodes of acute chest syndrome um the need for blood transfusions um however the the Big, the black box warning that we are always concerned about is the uh, myelosuppression. So you can get this decrease of white blood cells, platelets, um, and even potentially malignancy. I mean, it's essentially like poison that you're kind of putting in your body in some way, in some aspects. So, um, yes, it will increase the fetal hemoglobin as, as high as 50% concentrations, um, but definitely some uh, serious things to kind of keep in mind. Um, adverse effects besides that that are more common would be things like... Um, increase in LFTs, um, can increase your serum creatinine, definitely can cause some GI upset, and even like hyperpigmentation as well. And as far as adults go, it's a little bit different. So with adults, it's more indicated for patients who uh, have had three or more painful crises in a 12-month period, or they have like chronic symptomatic anemia. Um, maybe they've, they've actually had like a disability because of the their sickle cell disease, or they've had like recurrent episodes of acute chest syndrome. Um, those would all be factors that would make you potentially try hydroxyurea in an adult. And um, I guess in an adult patient too, one other thing to keep in mind would be um, contraception use, especially if you have a young, you know, 20-something-year-old, making sure because it has to be... Um, 
contraception is going to be required during treatment and then after it's been discontinued um, for six months for females and then 12 months for males. Yeah. So. Yeah, pregnancy is definitely a uh, special area of concern in these patients. High rates of fetal loss um, due to spontaneous abortion, uh, placenta previa, and abruption are common due to hypoxia, uh, placental infarction. Um, at birth, infants are often premature and they have low birth weights, uh, failure to thrive. Uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely a concern. And you know, it's different in patients who just carry the gene and don't actually have sickle cells. But um, yeah, in patients who actually have sickle cell disease. And back to the hydroxyurea, uh, definitely important because there aren't a lot of long-term options. So you mentioned a lot of issues and side effects, potential malignancy and that sort of thing. Um, but as far as the prognosis in America, um, it's still not fantastic long-term. So mortality is still high, especially in early childhood. Um, since they introduced prophylactic antibiotics like penicillin and pneumococcal vaccination, it definitely decreases the uh, risk for infection um, and dying from that cause. Um, the leading cause of death, like I mentioned before, is acute chest syndrome, um, and children have a higher incidence of acute chest syndrome, but a lower mortality rate um, than adults overall from that. Uh, there's a couple of like mortality studies that I was looking at. So Dallas did a newborn cohort. Um, so the estimated survival at 18 years was 94%. Uh, in a recent other study from the United Kingdom, um, a survival rate in patients with this HBSS um, at 16 years was 99%. So that's really good. But as far as, you know, the goal is to have them live long-term normal lifespans, um, the suggested survival, this is from, you know, over 20 years ago, uh, was about 48 years for women, 42 years for men. I would presume that it's higher now, um, but still significantly shorter than a, a regular lifespan. Yeah. One of the studies that um, I, I always think about that, I just like the name of it, uh, is Baby Hug. Baby Hug? Um, yeah. It wow, was, uh, that's sweet, Mike. Yeah, right? Um, hydroxyurea um, was shown to significantly reduce the incidence of vaso-occlusive crises and dactylitis in very young children. But the problem is that like the like you were saying like the long term mm -hmm. aspects of it are still kind of like mm -hmm. unknown. It's interesting because newborns um, are frequently they they mandate screening um, for all children now in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, but newborns are frequently protected by their mother's hemoglobin F for the first six months of life, which I think is very interesting. Um, but yeah, the, and that dactylysis was that hand foot syndrome that we were talking about earlier too. Yeah. So, uh, what are some other options? Well, it depends on what's, you know, what they're, um, coming in with. So of course we talked about pain, opioid options, regular opioids that you would think of, um, oxycodone, methadone, morphine, Percocet, fentanyl, pretty much something will have been tried before, especially if they're older. And, um, if they're not, there's might even be a protocol for how to start that at your hospital. Um, I guess you guys who've worked those patients would probably have more insight than me on that. Yeah, I know um, when I was down in the emergency department in January, we saw a lot of sickle cell patients. Um, and they generally, there's a clinic connected to MUSC also, so they generally have a protocol already in place. Yeah, gotcha. And it's just a matter of looking through their chart and seeing what they're supposed to be on. Nice. So nice. that's pretty easy from that standpoint. Good. At least. So I guess you start with that, and if it's not getting the job done, you just escalate from there? Yeah, yeah. 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 
um, the goals of treatment overall. So like I said, it depends on what you're, what they're presenting with, but you need to manage the vasoocclusive crisis. Um, they actually list seven goals in the guidelines, manage vasoocclusive crisis, chronic pain syndromes, chronic hemolytic anemia, um, treat and prevent infections, uh, manage complications of the various organ damage syndromes, ultimately prevent stroke because they're at a high risk for stroke. Uh, and then detect and treat pulmonary hypertension, which um, seems recent data is showing that's more of an issue than they used to think it was. So, you know, kind of looking at some of the other options that we have to reduce the frequency of vaso-occlusive crises um, in adults specifically. So we have an agent that was approved in November 2019, um, crizanlizumab. Nice. Hopefully I nailed I that. You, I think you nailed it. Whew, felt good. Um, so the mechanism of action here is not working on fetal hemoglobin because, again, it's reducing the frequency of vaso-occlusive crises. It's inhibiting something called P-selectin. And that um, P-selectin is um, translocated to the area of the endothelial um, after it's activated in the cell surface. And that's going to actually be what causes that adhesion to of sickle, like sickled red blood cells to the actual vessel, which can start causing damage. So you inhibit that P-selectin inhi- or inhibit that P-selectin and it, that process never kind of comes to fruition. Um, and this is given IV and it's given once every two weeks for two doses and then they go to once every four weeks. So you get an infusion and uh, the studies that looked at it used patients that were taking um, hydroxyurea and ones without. So uh, the studies were called the SUSTAIN clinical trial, which is confusing since hmm, SUSTAIN I've heard that before. Ozempic and that's the one we always think about with the death from a diabetes that's world. that's SUSTAIN 6 or I guess there were multiple, but the series. There was one through five, then one six. One through five, then six, yeah. <laughs> no, Maybe these weren't numbered. Maybe they were I don't think alpha. they were. Maybe it was sustain, sustain A. a. Yeah. That'd be yeah, less, less confusing for sure. But um, just to give you like, an example, they uh, crizanilizumab was reduced the median annual rate of vaso-occlusive crises leading to healthcare visits by 45.3% compared to placebo. And again, those patients were either taking or not taking hydroxyurea. So you, this can be an add-on. Um, but the adverse effects, besides the, the price, um, is going to be like neuromuscular pain, paritis, injection site reactions because of the infusion. Um, and then also the inconvenience of having to actually go get it infused. Um, so it's, it's fairly new in the market. I'm not sure how widely available it is at this point yet, but um, November 2019, that came out. I think it's fairly available. I was talking about it. I had to do a monograph on it for the P&T committee on my rotation in Did January. You? Yeah. Did you see people using it and stuff? They were starting to use it, yeah. Nice. I think they had about six patients on it. Nice. Yeah. I, I don't know how, like like you said, the price is insane. So, like, long-term, I don't know, you know, if it's sustainable, like hydroxyurea was. I think we were just trying to keep people on hydroxyurea for the most part. But Well, that's the way it is with all those monoclonal antibodies. Someday... Yeah. <laughs> They'll be like aspirin and, you know, they'll all be cheap, right? In the water. Yeah, they'll, be, they'll put it in the water. They'll be like aspirin and no longer needed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully. So um, L-glutamine is another one. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. And Dari. So L-glutamine is exactly what it is. It's a uh, amino acid. <laughs> um, and it's used to reduce acute complications of sickle cell disease. So the mechanism of action, um, last time I checked anyway, still says not fully understood, but they think that it decreases the like oxidative stress, um, which then can cause you know damage. Um, that was always the best mechanism because whenever I saw that when I was studying, I was like, well, don't have to know that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> they don't know either. Oxidative stress means they don't know. <laughs> not gonna, uh, not gonna put a test question about one that says not fully understood. Have you guys seen this used at all? No, no, no I haven't seen it. No. 
So, um, you know, as far as it's a powdered uh, oral powder and you mix it usually with eight ounces of fluid, um, it can be put in things like applesauce and yogurt and they take it twice daily. Um, adverse effects, GI upset, um, cough, headache. So pretty mild comparatively, which I guess you'd expect with being an amino acid. Right. But um, still not the cheapest thing on the market. I saw an interesting one. They um, There was a small study out of Nigeria where they used um, lime juice supplementation to help with ascorbic acid. Apparently, they, people who are um, deficient in ascorbic acid can actually have worsening um, hemoglobin polymerization. And so... Uh, it was small, it was only 113 patients, uh, but they did have a significant uh, decrease in painful episodes uh, and admission rates. So uh, that's something to think about, especially maybe if you're dealing with a patient population that's malnourished, you could check them for that type of uh, type of therapy that may be on the cheaper side is something as simple as lime juice or something with ascorbic acid. Yeah, and then um, lower develop- or underdeveloped countries, third world countries, uh, you definitely see the... Um, poor nutrition more frequently and they mention other vitamins like folic acid Um, and i was talking about mortality rates in america Um, there haven't been a lot um, in africa a lot of them are sporadic and incomplete Uh, there was one from 2004 that suggested approximately 50 percent of patient 50 percent of patients do not survive beyond 20 years in most all um, so in the 90 percentile did not survive above 50 years so um yeah, long-term prognosis is definitely not as good. So, if, you know, vitamin C can help. That's ascorbic acid, right? Mm-hmm. Vitamin C? Nice. Got it. Vitamin C. Still got it. Nailed it, man. <laughs> no, that, that can help, straight. then go for it. So I just looked to double-check myself, but the um, the L-glutamine can be used either with or without hydroxyurea as well. So as far as, like, prevention of vaso-occlusive pain episodes, they will use it as an adjunct hydroxyurea or um, as an alternate uh, if a patient can't take it for whatever reason. Nice. Um, it also is the only one, like that brand, and Dari is the brand name, it's the only one, because there's several other formulations of it available, um, it's the only one that's you know FDA approved for sickle cell. Not to say that people don't use it off-label, I'm sure, but um, yeah, sickle cell disease, it's in Dari, is the actual brand name that's, that's used. So um, Voxelator, is the other one on the market it was approved November 2019, um, and it's also indicated for treatment of sickle cell disease in adults and pediatric patients 12 years and older um, to cut down on the crises and all that. Um, this is going to inhibit the sickled um, hemoglobin polymerization, which is going to keep basically the red blood cells from sickling, and it's going to also reduce the, like the whole blood viscosity. And uh, it's given orally, it's an oral, oral medication, um, GI upset, nausea, um, abdominal pain, things like that. Um, and this is another one that can be given with or without hydroxyurea as well. Um, so it's another adjunct, um, potentially. Um, it is a s- substrate of CYP3A4. So if you have a patient that gets put on this, you got to watch the drug-drug interactions, but also newly available. Yeah, as far as other um, issues, because there's uh, a whole host of them, priapism is one uh, that can definitely be a concern. And Morgan pointed out that Sudafed is uh, an option to treat that. Uh, the reason they have uh, priapism frequently is because of the red blood cell issue and um, the vaso-occlusivity. Uh, they have issues with blood flow, and um, they can have priapism. The Sudafed can promote vasoconstriction by directly stimulating alpha-adrenergic receptors and uh, potentially help with that. Yep. I think it's always... Yeah. We used it a lot on my rotation the other month. 
fantastic. Very common. I was I was super confused. I was like, does this kid have allergies or what? What are we doing? So. Sickle cell crisis and the sniffles. There yeah, you go. <laughs> Treat both of them. So um, there's another thing that uh, I know, like Trident Medical uses a lot, just because Scott Bragg's over there on their inpatient area. He uses um, zinc sulfate, um, 220 milligrams, I believe, like two or three times a day. And there's like this Cochrane review from. A while. I want to say like 2006, but it may not be right. Um, it's a Cochrane review. What is what is it, Ryan? Uh, 2013. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Bragg definitely gave this to me while I was with him. Okay, so perfect. I, was, I had it pulled up. Sorry, you, I didn't mean to steal no, your you thunder. Go ahead. You go ahead. Um, but basically, uh, it's been shown to reduce the like annual occurrence of sickle cell crises. And the, the mechanism, if I remember correctly, is something along the lines of keeping the red blood cells like hydrated. And uh, it's something that you'll see a lot of the patients that get put in, you know, inpatient in his clinic will, or his hospital rather, will get put on this as a supplement and hopefully leave on it because um, it's pretty or was fairly cheap the last time I looked. Yeah, I think that was usually his goal of intervention was to try to have something as a preventative measure that's not that expensive and maybe could cut back on hospital time and even um, any kind of these other comorbidities. There's also some slightly promising data that say that it can help uh, prevent the flu. So you combine that with the Sudafed, and you're knocking out like four birds. Right. Yeah. Because right, cause zinc's like super expensive right now. Yeah, right. of, uh, all the uh, Price gouging. Apparently there's this virus going around. Is there? And that's what I heard. Man, I gotta look into that. Yeah. Yeah, I found a case of hand sanitizer in my trunk. It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth five thousand dollars right now. Oh my god. Yeah. But um, the other thing is red blood cell transfusions. So yeah, yeah. Transfusions are one of those things that um, they're not typically going to be required for like usual anemia or episodes of pain associated with it. Um, but there are certain indications where you would need to have have an infusion. So um, acute infarctive stroke, um, severe acute chest syndrome, multi-organ failure syndromes, right upper quadrant syndrome, um, preposition that does not resolve after adequate hydration and analgesia or potentially Sudafed. Potentially. Um, those could all be reasons that uh, a patient would be indicated to get a transfusion. Um Obviously, there's issues with the authority about that, including iron overload, um, which, you know, is fixable, but still can cause a lot of problems. So um, don't think about it, though, as far as like a routine, you know, thing to, to do. No, but you're definitely going to see it more in this patient population than the For sure. population at large. Yes. Um, I'm gonna, I was going to talk about some of the preventative stuff, especially in kids. Do you have any other treatment or options? That's all I got. So one of the things you'll see usually is uh, the prevention of pneumococcal infection is a big deal in, in children. And so they'll do penicillin prophylaxis. Um, so children that are less than three years old usually do 125 milligrams of penicillin twice a day. Um, three and older, um, uh, basically three and older up to five is when this is kind of stopped. They do uh, 250 milligrams BID. And uh, if the child does have a, a penicillin allergy, then they'll use the erythromycin ethyl succinate, the, the suspension, um, BID. And then at five, they, they stop that and they don't um, do any more. Um, immunizations. So most kids now are going to be getting um, the uh, pneumococcal series. So Prevnar 13 is going to be given to most um, children at this point, but the series is going to be given to infants. And then um, once the child turns two um, and five, they're going to receive um, 
a uh, Pneumovax 23 as well, the polysaccharide vaccine. So definitely give the conjugate first because you're going to get a much better immune response to the conjugate vaccine. Um, and then the polysaccharide, once the kid's a little older, the immune system is a little bit better, then you can give the polysaccharide. Um, and then it's also an indication for a uh, meningococcal vaccine as well. Um, influenza starting at six months old, give two influenza shots um, six months apart for the first first time they're getting in their life and then every annually after that which all of us should technically be doing. But, you know. And then hopefully the coronavirus vaccine, whenever that gets released. Might be might be having that by next flu, or not this flu season, but the following flu season. Might be giving that one as well. We'll see. Awesome. Yep. Great. Can't wait. If we weren't doing enough vaccines. <laughs> right. Man. And we got two uh, two more pneumonia vaccines coming on the market too. Yeah. I think next year. Great. There's Are they going to replace? 15 and 20 serotype. I think it's Merck and Pfizer. I guess it won't replace Prevnar. Just. I wonder what they're going to do I think with the guidelines gonna, there. Well, so Pfizer's working on the 20 serotypes. I'm sure they're going to use that to replace. I'm already kind of confused as to what to recommend to people about Prevnar now. 65 and over, it's clinician specific. Yeah. Like, so if so person, I mean, like, if they're, I don't know, if they're asking, like, you know, me and the pharmacy. I usually say if a person has, like, you know, diabetes, hypertension, something will put them at risk. anything, COPD, give it to them. Sure, yeah. but if it's person's perfectly healthy, they have no other risk factors, it's probably not going to do much. Which is rare. Yeah. You know. Well, speaking of COVID nineteen, so we'll be on we'll be on drug wash for our um, little coronavirus update. But we I mentioned Plaquenil in the last episode, mm-hmm. so yeah, there there looks promising for hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine to be one of the contenders for something they treat with. And then Gilead is uh, in phase three clinical trials with a antiretroviral. Yep. Yeah. The um, what was it called? It starts with an R. Yeah, it does. Yeah, remdesivir. There it is. So we'll see what happens there, but yeah, thousand patients in their uh, phase three clinical trial currently. Do you see the uh, they have an inpatient and an outpatient study going on right now with Losartan? Yeah, I saw Losartan too. Yeah. I still don't understand that, but maybe somebody can explain that to me. I got a good article I can send you, but it's okay. basically because of the production of um, ACE two that uh, and that enzyme. They if originally they were saying ACEs and ARBs are terrible, it stop everybody, and then we realized maybe that's probably not a good idea, <laughs> and then. Uh, and then basically they were saying that now there's some thought that because ACE2 is the enzyme that basically the COVID-19, this is my very basic understanding of it, can kind of um, use that enzyme to kind of hitch a ride inside of the cell. Hmm. And that's what it uses as spike protein or whatever to migrate inside the cell. And so if we can kind of shut down some of that or deregulate some of that, then... So it steals its transportation. Mm-hmm. Just totally cuts off public transit. Right. Nice. And then now they're saying uh, ibuprofen can increase viral viral replication oh interesting the world health so first i got a uh, a text from beiju shah mm-hmm. um and he was like dude check this out it was like the morning and then like literally like that night is in the world health organization said don't take ibuprofen and i was like i knew before they did thanks beiju <laughs> <laughs> so that's crazy lots of stuff we're gonna have uh patrick on here to Give us an update from the yeah, front lines at the he's VA. In, he's in charge of the VA over there, right? Allegedly. <laughs> it must be really slim pickings on. What a world. <laughs> I know, right? What, that is why everything's happening. Yeah. It's happening. Just kidding. Love you, Patrick. I'm going to blame him. So um, do we have anything else since we're totally off topic now? Anything else for this? That's all I got. I definitely say let's do a follow-up. Let's grab a couple of the um, complications and just yeah, go, go in with deep. it. For Very sure. Deep. We'll do that. 
but uh, yeah, for now we'll call that a good. Um, so thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I hope I know this is a very very brief and basic overview, but I hope it was somewhat useful. Um, but thank you guys so much for the support. Um, if you have any questions, you know our emails, the and other contact information will be in the show notes. And um, all my new uh, buddies here will be um, able to be in contact with too. If you're interested in getting in touch with any of them, I'm sure they won't mind us sharing all your all their Instagram stuff with everybody. <laughs> and uh, sure, why not? And but yeah, thank you guys so much. If you do like the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a comment or rating. That helps us out a lot. Don't forget to follow us on you know all the social media platforms, YouTube, hint hint. That's the big one right now. We're going after. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much. Good to be back. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ryan, don't mess up my sign off. I'm trying to say bye. <laughs> Just kidding. Thanks, guys. <laughs>